It's the Basketball Hall of Fame's Legends Podcast. I'm Kyle Belanger. Joining me today is a titan of basketball and culture unlike any other. He is a 2011 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee. He's an eight-time NBA champion. In fact, he's an unbeaten 8-0 in NBA Finals. He's the founder of the NBA Rookie Transition Program, and he's a man who served as head coach with both the Boston Celtics and Harvard University. He is Satch Sanders. Mr. Sanders, thanks so much for your time this morning. Hey, Tom, good to be here with you. Now, at six foot six, two hundred and ten pounds at your at your playing weight, uh, and at the power forward position, your role as a defensive stopper on those championship teams was remarkable. Can you talk about the discussions and hard work that went into your transition from the scorer to the stopper? Well, the, the, the advantage I had at six six was I had some very long arms, about a, almost a seven foot uh, uh, stand, and that helped greatly to make uh, that six six into almost six eight, six eight and a half. So uh, there was an advantage there for me. Um, Defense is an interesting part of the game. It's a challenge every time. And since I like challenges, it was fun. I always thought the scoring part was the easy part of the game. But uh, the defense, that that was fun and challenging. Gosh, I love that perspective. Who was? Do you mind if I ask who the most challenging and fun challenging assignment was for you personally on defense? Well, you know, I had the pleasure of playing against a gentleman, Elgin Bello, with the Los Angeles Lakers, and he was a man that I idolized and really respected. And the first uh, outstanding player I had to attempt to guard was Elgin Bello in an exhibition game in 1960. And I will say that uh, the intimidation factor uh, did not keep me from attempting to, to do my best against I love I, I love your wording as well. It's it's so careful and so and so well put. What's what's the one thing uh, that you wish more people knew about those Boston Celtics teams? You know, so much of legend and folklore has been put into those teams. We lose some of the actual individual characteristics. What is the one thing you wish more people knew about those teams? Well, just the the greed of wanting to win uh, every game. Uh, I had never encountered uh, a, a group of players uh, from high school, college, or wherever I played tournaments, etc. Never encountered a group of players that wanted to win every game, and more than that, expected to win every single game. Uh, that was pretty high, high stuff to me when I got to the Celtics, and from the top to the to to, to whatever the level you want to go to. Entire team thought that way, and it was, it was something I was able to get involved in, begin to feel also. Uh, it was phenomenal. Now, following your retirement, uh, your contribution to the game really took another life. Um, it starts with your hiring as the head coach at Harvard in 1973. You were, in fact, the first African-American coach of any sport in Ivy League history. And that was just five years after the Civil Rights Act of 68. Can you recall the climate and adjustment that you faced? And is it safe to say that uh, at that time, basketball was only a part of the mission for you? Well, um, the name of the game, as far as I was concerned, was to uh, become a coach at that point. Uh, all of the other situations, be it first or second or whenever, 
in terms of being African American and getting a, a position, that, that's Charlotte Rodden. First thing was to get the appointment, the job. And now after Harvard, you, you made a brief stop as the Celtics head coach. And, and it was part of a stretch of Celtics history on which you and Russell and Heinsohn, Cowens and Fitch, you all each occupied the seat in, in really just a, a 10-year stretch. Looking back, do you think that that was um, a time where the franchise was maybe just looking to recapture some of the magic from those glory days of the 60s? Well, uh, the Arbeck era of, uh, of coaching and certainly running the team was looking for some continuity. Clearly, we didn't have a Bill Russell type to, to lead us, but uh, the hope and the dream was always there that, hey, we can find a way to win. It just did not occur during that uh, first few seasons, as you said, mentioned. Uh, Heinsohn was able to get it done twice. Uh, I was removed, I think, after a season, after the, a part of the season. Um, Casey Jones was able to step in and get it done also. But it was a, a difficult time. Uh, it all all helped us to really believe in, in the Bill Russell theory. Without us, it's going to be a real hard job. Of course, uh, your most long-lasting impact came in 1986 when you founded the NBA's rookie transition program uh, to help young players adjust to life as professionals. It was the first of its kind in any of the American sports, and now, of course, it's a standard across all of them. What experience did you have, or, or what were you noticing in young players that, that made you arrive at, at that need at that time? Well, it was more uh, than looking at the young players. It was a matter of looking in the mirror and remembering what I had gone through as a young player and what uh, a lot of my teammates uh, went through as players. And just the fact that uh, there was not exactly a, a plan, a direction uh, we had to learn by doing and, and through all those experiences. And it, it would have been helpful to have at least a heads up about what was going on in terms of becoming a high-profile uh, player in the National Basketball Association. And so uh, I basically pulled some of my experiences and quite a few other experiences. We had uh, <laughs> knew a lot of players and had a chance to talk to quite a few of them uh, about what should be involved with the, uh, with the rookie program. And it is incredible because, I mean, this. let's be honest, the, the horses, uh, you know, the, the horse left the stable a long time ago. This, these, these young men are being thrust into a spotlight that maybe, uh, maybe, maybe their children won't even be ready for, right? This is much more than just affecting a player. It's, a, it's affecting families. It's affecting generations of families, isn't it? Well, the, the issue, you know, we're, we're involved with uh, certain players gaining coming into the league and of course making the exit. Now I understand the focus uh, The focus is on the player. It, obviously there's family and there are other people involved but our focus is particularly the player and the adjustments they have to make coming in and, and leaving. Uh, a lot of the high profile that are involved uh, now it's really generated by the media. Nothing much has changed as far as the players are concerned and the performance of expected. Finally, Mr. Sanders, what does it mean for you to be working with the Hall of Fame at this stage in your life? Well, I had the pleasure since uh, 1962 of knowing the, uh, 
the directors and people involved with the, the Hall of Fame. So it's been a, an involvement that, that, uh, that touched on friendships and a whole lot of relationships over a lot of years. So long before there was any possibility of my becoming a part of the Hall of Fame, uh, I had relationships uh, with members of the Hall of Fame. Uh, it's quite an institution. I'm proud to be in, involved with it, and uh, this book continues to grow. It certainly represents the fine the game of basketball the way it should be represented. He was the head coach of the Boston Celtics and the Harvard Crimson, the founder of the NBA Rookie Transition Program, an eight-time NBA champion, and a 2011 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee. Mr. Satch Sanders, thank you very much for your time today. This is God, thank you, and take care. You too.